Welcome to the Black Sparrow Media Internet Broadcast Network. And welcome. You have tuned into episode number 176 of Linux in the Ham Shack. Yes, we're doing it all again for the 176th time. My name is Russ. I'm the host, K5TUX. And from a really swanky hotel out in Big Sky Country, we have Bill, NE4RD. Howdy from Bozeman, Montana. And across from me, we also have Cheryl. Wow, we're getting old. Why are we getting old? Because we've done 176 episodes. We have. We started this back in <laughs> 2008. Hard to believe. I tell you, we're getting old. I know. It's almost 2017, but we, we're we still going to work on it. <laughs> uh, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Don't look at me in that tone of voice. <laughs> Fine. I'll just stare at the corner over across the room or something. <laughs> okay. All right, so I guess we're going to jump right into it. Our first segment deals with amateur radio topics, so we're going to talk about some amateur radio stuff. Bill, you want to put up a big-ass antenna in your backyard? Yeah, I want to put up the biggest antenna I can find. This is in regards to uh, uh, HR-1301, which uh, passed in the House here uh, just a few days ago and has been uh, sent over to the Senate. This is the Amateur Radio Parity Act or uh, what I like to call the I want to put up a big effing antenna in my backyard and lower property values in the neighborhood bill. <laughs> wow. And uh, yeah, no, no, it's good. It's good news for ham radio uh, people in the, in the, these uh, ultra restricted communities where you can't even put up a, a simple little vertical or, or any kind of antenna to get you on the air. You know, I can understand some, some people complaining about the guy that wants to put up that, uh, that, uh, you know, 150 foot tower in uh, you know a neighborhood where houses are only eight foot apart. Uh, you know I think people have some uh, <laughs> have some legs there to run, but uh, but I think for the most part I, this is a good bill for amateur radio, and it, it looks like it's finally getting some traction. Yeah, it's been pushed by the AWRL and, and several agencies for some time. We've been talking about it for a long time, and it's nice to see that it's actually getting some mobility and getting through some of the governmental red tape. But on the one hand, it I do see the efficacy of this, and it is nice that amateur radio operators will have fewer restrictions when it comes to putting up an antenna because you want them to be able to provide emergency communications whenever possible. But isn't it a case that, you know, if you're an amateur radio operator and you want to put up a 200-foot antenna, shouldn't you just live somewhere else? I mean, <laughs> I mean, aren't you kind of shooting yourself in the foot by being part of a HOA community? Yeah, I mean, I hope that's like the small, small percentage of the cases here. You know, I, I know uh, a, a good uh, a good friend of mine and Ham here in town, and, uh, you know, he was in a smaller community, and he just wanted to put up a simple dipole, and they finally let it pass. As long as the dipole didn't go above the peak of the roof, uh, he's able to, to get it on the air. And, uh, you know, they, they compromised. And I, that's really what it takes. If, if you've got an HOA that will not compromise, I can understand the need to, to go for these legal, legal challenges. But, 
Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I don't really sympathize with the guy that wants to put up the ugliest monstrosity antenna or about 5,000 antennas on his house. <laughs> that doesn't look good in any neighborhood. No, that's true. And I'm not a big fan of housing authorities. I think they're all a bunch of crap because I believe if you buy a house somewhere, you really should be able to, you know, within a certain amount of reason, do what you want with it. But some of these are, are overly oppressive. And I, I definitely think, and you know, it's it's always a case of where do you draw the line at. But I think H.R. 1301 really goes in the right direction and hopefully uh, some good will come out of it. We also had a story about uh, amateur radio military interop exercise set up for the end of October around Halloween time. Yeah, spooky. You know, radio waves and tinfoil hats and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, An amateur radio military interop exercise will take place over the October 31st to November 1st weekend. The event will be located on the 60-meter channels 1 through 4 with uh, certain frequencies. As you know, if you're operating in the 60-meter band, we have channels, not just a frequency range to operate upon, at least here in the U.S., uh, during the exercise, military stations will attempt to make radio contact with stations in as many of the 3,143 United States counties as possible. Radio amateurs providing county status information will receive a U.S. Department of Defense interoperability QSL card. And for more information on this, you can contact the Military Auxiliary Radio Service, or MARS. It's a story that came out of the ARRL, and there's an email address here, mars.exercises at gmail.com, that you can email if you want more information about this. That's so cool. here's some spooky stuff to do on your Halloween. Yeah, that sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> I want my DOD QSL card. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Probably like, yeah, that comes with a NA, NSA probe. Right. I was going to say, there's probably some like RFID chip attached to it, so as soon as you touch it, it'll send your fingerprints and your DNA sample off to some nefarious agency, and yeah. <laughs> but, Where's your exactly. tinfoil hat again? <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't wear tinfoil hats. <laughs> Sounds like you do. Yeah. <laughs> All right, you want to read the next one? Lunar orbitating ham satellite. Orbitating? Nice or, word. Yeah, great. <laughs> Lunar <laughs> Gary, orbiting. Gary's ears just perked up. He's like, <laughs> <laughs> he's like, I can hear them screwing up from 400 miles away. <laughs> and you were the one fixing my cocktails earlier, so I'm a little drunk right now. Lunar orbiting ham satellite could result from NASA challenge. A NASA Cube Quest uh, challenge team partnered with AMSAT NA is among the five. Wow. <laughs> Let me try this again. Among the five CQC teams to receive $20,000 each from the spare agency, space agency. Probably should use my glasses too. <laughs> as a part of a competition that could lead to lunar orbiting amateur radio satellite. CubeQuest is an opportunity for non government CubeSat developers and builders to compete in lunar orbit and deep space for accomplishments in communications, navigations, and longevity said CQC competition manager Jim Cockrell of NASA Ames Research Center. Cockrell likened a ground tournament to a mission concept review, where teams present initial spacecraft designs and no hardware is involved. The ultimate goal of the competition is to send CubeSats into lunar orbit for, or deep space. NASA is offering a total of $3 million in prizes in the lunar derby portion of the competition, both for being able to enter lunar orbit and to meet communication longevity goals. 
You want to try that last sentence again just so I can edit it? And... <laughs> Both for being able to enter lunar orbit and to meet communication and longevity goals. Okay. That's yeah, what I said. No, you, you kind of missed the word and, but that's okay. Okay, whatever. Uh, well, that's all right. Well, I've got it on tape now, so I can, <laughs> I can just stick it in anytime you say the word and. I'll just. <laughs> Great. Thanks. Uh, Again, glasses are important here. Yeah. So, which I am missing. They're laying on my bedside table. Well, uh, maybe you can pick them up before you're part of the show. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, I, I know what I fixed for dinner, so okay, I'm good. Anyway, that story came from Eham, which was a redirect, I think, from the ARRL. So that's kind of interesting. I'm not sure what use a lunar orbiting satellite will be, uh, except for maybe people practicing satellite communication on the moon. <laughs> uh, yeah, but yeah, it works. It's a it's a thing anyway. NASA's doing a thing, so there you go. <laughs> Spending taxpayer money. That's right. It's only three million dollars of it. When you consider most government or agency funded programs, it's a really really small amount. Yeah, but that's just the budget. It's actually you know about like nine hundred percent that once they're done with it. <laughs> right. So, so two point seven trillion dollars later, we're going to have a five hundred dollars satellite orbiting the moon. So <laughs> exactly, <laughs> that kids put together but, at right. high schools. <laughs> yeah, the the Boy Scouts did it after the Pinewood yeah. Derby. They. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. All right. So anyway, that's all we had for amateur radio topics for tonight. So we're going to move on to some open source flash topics. All right, yeah, Bill, we got on. lots of flash topics, right, huh? Let's do it. All right, well, here's the first flash topic. This is a follow-up to the story we featured last time about tabs and spaces. There is 156, with 156 million GitHub commits, they found 48,000 F-bombs in code commits <laughs> on GitHub. <laughs> nice. Now, this is a great use of big data tools <laughs> <laughs> for yeah for random purposes uh I, ju- I just thought this was uh this is a funny follow-up to that story uh on medium that we uh we put in the last podcast yeah this is something that i would probably use big data for let's see how many times i said you know <laughs> <laughs> right so, so puts a, you need like a how many times there was sarcasm used in the uh, doc strings and stuff Badger. like that Badger, stop it! <laughs> how many times? Badger, badger, how many badger. times does Badger show up? That's what I want to know. <laughs> I bet it's more than forty-eight thousand. Yeah, forty-eight thousand badgers. <laughs> I, I actually use I actually use the f bomb as uh, output redirect for some things. Like if I read a script when I want to send like the standard error out to something, instead of using like foo and bar like everybody does, I use weird things sometimes and that's one of them yeah yeah, yeah. So it, was, it was interesting to see of uh, some of the most uh common phrases and some of the more interesting phrases in here and if you go to the link in the show notes you could read them yourself otherwise we'd have to badger the heck out of this <laughs> <laughs> yeah anybody who listened to the last show noticed there were several <laughs> yes there were there was there were several badgers that's right we met our quota like, here's 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 my favorite one no badgering idea what this will do. <laughs> That's a great, great string there. <laughs> badgering password is too badgering short. Oh, my badgering God. I did a release with this debug code left in. Horror. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, this is this is great. That's good. That's Roll a back fun license read. from what the badger you want to unlicensed. Really? <laughs> no. <laughs> wow. Oh God, yeah, yeah. It, it is quite humorous and. uh uh, having, having, you know, being a programmer, yeah, we leave all kinds of trash behind in our codes. <laughs> right. And with things like Git and version control, all of that stuff stays even after it's edited out. <laughs> Forever. Right. <laughs> it's, in, it's in the Library of Congress now. That's right. Then our, let's see, our other Flash topic, another follow-up is uh, almost a follow-up, right? The Vim and Emacs uh, stories here. Vim announced the release of 8.0 on September 12th with too many features to list since it's only been 10 short years since the last release. Uh, <laughs> wow, there's some 10. motivation. <laughs> there's a lot of code commits in that. I bet you there's some uh, F-bombs in there along the way. When are they badgering going to release this? <laughs> <laughs> it's been 10 badger years since the last release, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And then, you know, Emacs, just six days later, at least that's as far as I could tell, uh, they, they released a uh, uh, 25 point one uh with very with with again a huge list of improvements i, I think they've they've only been uh, out for like maybe a four year uh, release cycle or something like that so not quite as long as vim but there you go they uh they couldn't let vim have their little announcement for more than a week right and one of my favorite sayings in the computer world is emacs is a fantastic operating system but it lacks a good text editor <laughs> there is some truth to that <laughs> uh so anyway there you go new versions of them it's not like it with more features than you can mention for 10 years of development time that no one will ever use just just like emacs emacs yeah. can do everything including probably send a probe to mars but you'll never use all those features but i can tell you i already have them on my system uh, running 8.0 because I'm on a rolling release. Yeah, very good, very good. So have you noticed the difference? No. Yeah, I didn't figure you had. <laughs> no, I know all my plugins work, so that, that's, that's Well, that's good. good. Yeah, that's good. always good news. Backward compatibility is, is definitely a thing. Yeah, so. nothing broke, so that's always good. Yep. So. Let's move on, huh? All right, let's move on to dead open office and the vivacious LibreOffice. So uh, we've had one project, the original project, Star Office, go belly up. I was going to say something else. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then we had a fork into OpenOffice, which forked again into LibreOffice. Now OpenOffice has apparently gone belly up. And now we're left with LibreOffice, which I've been using for some time now and is a fantastic office suite. The history of it. It's kind of interesting. The big stink was when OpenOffice uh, was basically what bought out by Oracle. Yes. And they forked it off to LibreOffice, and all the developers followed LibreOffice. <laughs> and then uh, OpenOffice became this, uh, what, redheaded stepchild of the Apache program once uh, nobody else wanted to touch it. And, uh, yeah, it just died. It's interesting to see the life cycles of these. And, uh, yeah, LibreOffice is great. I, I mean, it's... Uh, it's good software. It's fully complete. And uh, as we'll talk about in the next story, you know, it's it's definitely uh, expanding into government agencies and all across anywhere where they have, you know, an open source program or uh, agenda, let's say. Right, because one of its best features is its interoperability with the other office suites like MS Office, 
you can read and write documents between the two, so that makes it a great thing. And where uh, Office is very, very expensive, uh, LibreOffice is very, very free. Both kinds are free, which is why it's a great thing. Although they do ask for donations, which, you know, if you're uh, inclined to do that kind of thing, you definitely should, because of, of the you know software out there that's worth money, even if they don't ask you to pay for it, LibreOffice is definitely on top of that list. Yeah, and they have a lot of funders too, and I think that's a I think that's listed in the ZDNet article. Um, you know, there's there's some big companies and stuff like that that are uh, funneling money into LibreOffice to, you know, get certain feature sets and stuff like that. And that's really how open source works. You know, if you really want to beat a drum on a on a, on a certain portion of a piece of software or an entire suite of software, beat it with money, and uh, generally it it will improve. I'm trying to think if I put that in any of these stories here. Probably not. I was I was looking through all the the open source commits and I was showing uh, companies that uh, have people on staff giving back into open source projects. It's an interesting list of people that are giving back to open source projects, and you'd probably be surprised who's number one. Um, guessing I probably would because you say I would be. So who is it? Microsoft. <laughs> is that based on like lines of code? Because they're not exactly efficient about stuff. Oh, uh, you know, well, you know, they got to add enough bloat to pay for their copyright. It's just really good. It's good to see these companies are giving uh, flex time and stuff like that for these guys to, uh, you know, give back to the programming communities and stuff like that. You know, obviously Facebook and uh, a lot of the web companies are, are all in that same league, but you know, it's good to see a big company like Microsoft and stuff like that, that are actually, you know, giving back and, you know, especially with Microsoft doing so much open source stuff these days. You know, I wonder how long it will be before they open source office 365. Ha 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 ha. <laughs> <laughs> we did a story quite a few episodes back about, there was some consternation about Microsoft's giving back to the open source community because a large portion of the code base that they're giving back is self-serving because it powers some of their virtualization technology and Azure and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Azure wouldn't even live without open source. Well, let's continue on the LibreOffice. Uh, we do have a, another article there uh, about LibreOffice, and this kind of emphasizes what we talked about with you know, governments and agencies that are pushing for open source uh, projects to run their infrastructure. Uh, th- this one here is from the Italian military. They moved the first 8,000 PCs to LibreOffice, an open office uh, productivity suite like we know. And let's see, what else is there? Anything else good? Not really. It was just, uh, it was just another point on that uh, long live LibreOffice. <laughs> so uh, check it out in the show notes. It's uh, over at the uh, you know Join Up European Commission site. And you've seen this probably numerous times. I think, you know, at least the last four or five years, LibreOffice has been making gains in places. And I think there's even been some FUD articles that said, oh, it just failed miserably. Users were alienated and crap like that. And I, I just think that's pretty much FUD. I'm sure it is. I mean, there's there's no reason why a suite is well-written and as uh, fully functional as LibreOffice should ever fail wherever it's implemented. Yeah, Sometimes corporations like to throw money at stuff. Yeah, and I'm amazed. I like, you know, I do a lot of, uh, for my other little side project, I do a lot of Excel sheets with macros and, and stuff like that that, you know, tag onto the database and, you know, just for presentation layer stuff, reporting and stuff like that. And I'm amazed that a lot of those just run right out of the box with LibreOffice, you know, with, you know, using ADO, DB stuff, <laughs> specific Microsoft library stuff. No reverse engineering going on here. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. It's amazing. 
absolutely amazing how how well it works. So if you haven't checked it out in a while, 5.0 came out not too long ago. Very good. Don't need to say too much more about LibreOffice. We all know it's incredible. So uh, why open source misses the point of free software? I didn't get a chance to look at this one, but I love the headline. It's definitely clickbait or the equivalent of clickbait for a podcast. When we call software free, we mean that it respects the user's essential freedoms. And there are lots of podcasts, including like Free is in Freedom, that talk about the essential freedoms, the four freedoms of open source. The freedom to run it, to study and change it, and to redistribute copies with or without changes. This is a matter of freedom, not price. So think of free speech, not free beer. Uh, oh, this was written by Stallman. So yeah, it's going to be evangelical in nature. <laughs> I didn't get a chance to read this one, though. So can you... Uh, Give us your interpretation. Not really. <laughs> I was I was hoping to trigger you into, into doing this one because <laughs> oh, I can't. And I'm I can't like, compete oh, with you're just the guy. I'm too pragmatic for Stallman. He's he's much he's much more the evangelist than I am. So <laughs> uh, uh, we can always cut this one out if you want. I, <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I saw since, since Etherpad was slightly empty. I was like, I'm going to throw a couple extra stories in here, and maybe you'll read it. <laughs> Actually, this looks like a really interesting article. I wish I had a chance to read it before the show. And pretty much anything Stallman says is probably worth reading, at least if you're really interested in GNU software and licensing and, and all of the stuff that makes up the free part of freedom, the Libre part of freedom. So I'm going to go ahead and check this after the show. But anyway, at least we'll we'll drop it in here so we can leave it as a link in the show notes and you can go check it out and read it for yourself and come to your own conclusions about what Stallman has to say about free software. Jay Lindsay has had a couple of comments in the in the chat room. One about the earlier story about Emacs. He says the 25.1 version has a WebKit browser built into it, which means you can actually run YouTube in Emacs. Awesome. <laughs> so just in case it wasn't bloated enough for you, there you go. And he also, <laughs> said, <laughs> he also says uh, we love Stallman, but we know he's not a practical man. No, he's definitely not. No. We, we got to have people with convictions in this world. So <laughs> there you go. So we're going to talk about some Linux in the ham shack topics, which is kind of why we do this whole thing. You've made up a system of scoring Linux distributions for ham shack readiness. So give us your take on that. So, yeah, this is our uh, <clears throat> sort of badgerful <laughs> LHS readiness score. Um, it's a completely made up scoring system for rating distributions and builds for their ham shack readiness. So this is be like any type of... Uh, ISO, live system, whatever that you download. Some of the items, you know, that we're looking for to build the score, mind you, it's completely subjective. We look for availability and access to a live image. That's pretty important. You, you'd be surprised there's still systems out there that you, uh, it's hard to find an actual bootable ISO that you can test drive the system to see if it has drivers for everything. You know, having, having the ability to test drive a system is pretty important. Ease of installation, that's something that uh, you were talking about last week, OS, you know, how, how hard was it to find the packages and stuff like that and, you know, get the stuff installed. Compatibility with, with bare metal, and I'm talking about my bare metal or your bare metal if you tried it on there, and a virtual box because, hey, we all like to try virtual box. Look and feel, hey, you know, we like the aesthetics. You know, is it a polished, finished UI look? Is it just some knockdown version of something we don't want to look at. <laughs> Some people like that now. I'm, I'm, I'm not dissing that, but it's again, we're subjective here. Uh, ease of access to current releases of Ham Shack software. 
So that's that's pretty important, at least to me. I like having the, the latest versions of things. It becomes uh, somewhat complicated when you're trying to get certain features to work and your library does not have those latest versions of things because it's a, you know it's an ever-moving target uh, software is. And then success with hooking it up to Hamchak hardware. You know, does the rig control work? Can I hook it up to a Winkier? Does signal link work? Does the audio interface on my rig work? You know, if you have a built-in audio interface. So just to, just to give you some ideas of some scores, this is a five-point system. Some of the previous systems that we've kind of talked about, uh, these are just these are my scores. So don't blame don't blame Russ for this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Solus, which I am currently running. Okay, so here you go. This is something I use every day. I give it a two point five. It has lost points due to ease of access to Hamshack software because there is none. You have to compile everything yourself. If you want it to run, <laughs> uh, it is not in the repository yet. They are still working on fundamental packages that uh, run things like FL Digi, and I'm talking about like FLTK, which is a, a pretty pretty significant package on uh, the build out of uh, FL uh, Digi and all those programs from them. So uh, yeah, 2.5 for Solus, my daily driver. True OS, the one we uh, looked at last week. That's the new uh, rolling release free BSD, 3.5. It uh, lost points because as soon as I put it on bare metal, the Wi-Fi didn't work <laughs> out of the box. It's like, oh, well, I'm not even installing it. Uh, the aesthetics, I think both you and I didn't like the uh, the looks of it. It was kind of basic looking and uh, trying to find things in the UI was a little bit, uh, let's say, clunky. It's, it was definitely so. I'm I'm not interested in looking at a distribution that still looks like I could be running it on a Spark station at this point. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If it looks like CDE, uh, I don't think I still want to be running it. Right. <laughs> uh, but there are people uh, out there who really love those super basic window managers and don't even use desktop environments. They love it for the speed, not necessarily for the aesthetics. That's but, true. See, now I run Solus purely because of aesthetics. It runs great. It's beautiful. It's fast. About 95% of the things I do run fine on here. I don't have to run amateur radio software on this because I'm I'm not required to. Right. <laughs> I can I can run it on other boxes at home. So in this particular box that I use every day for Linux is is definitely a, a is a Solus box. So let's move on. Uh, Ubuntu sixteen oh four. You know, just pretty much every sixteen oh four Ubuntu. Yeah, we can talk Ubuntu Budgie, Ubuntu, you know, multimedia, you know, what do I call it? Ubuntu Studio and stuff like that. They're all the same, basically, because they're all hitting the same 1604 repositories. Uh, you know, it gets a 3.5, and primarily it's because of the PPA hell you have to deal with. You know, getting those recent packages. Yeah, you can get it set up, and they got 5,000 different ways to set up the GUI, so it's exactly what you want. But getting all those PPAs and then maintaining them, I think is, uh, is is a problematic solution for the long run of any uh, LTS system because you're relying on the person who's generating those packages to a keep it up to date and b keep it compatible with the uh, the actual distribution's packaging system. Right. The next one is Elementary OS, Loki and Luna. You know, Loki just came out, uh, and that's based on I think 16.04. I could be wrong. Same thing, PPA hell, but it gets extra points for beauty, so it, it scored a 3.8. <laughs> so <laughs> a, a whole point three for beauty that's nice yeah a whole point three three points for for beauty because you know elementary os is 
is about the sexiest Ubuntu distribution there is. <laughs> <laughs> and they'll say, well, it's not Ubuntu, it's Pan- Pantheon or something like that. And on top of Ubuntu, uh, you know, packaging, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but it's beautiful. If, if you want Ubuntu, install elementary OS. It's just beautiful. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. All right. Okay, so that... that that gets us the whole background of the readiness score that I'm going to use probably for just this episode. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, you've got to go for it now. Now we've got a whole uh, system established. So, every- Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll see what the, if we get any feedback from this. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I tried a, a, few, a few rolling releases of different uh, distributions this past, uh, past week. I actually installed it all in bare metal, primarily because I was thinking about getting rid of Solus <laughs> so I could run ham radio software. And I'm like, well, I'm not doing all these other ones. I want something that's you know pretty much right on the right on the cusp of bleeding edge, but maybe not quite bleeding edge. So the first one I tried out was Sparky Linux. And Sparky Linux is a rolling distribution for Debian. It has uh, the you know, availability to the meta packages for the Ham Radio Pure Blend. Everything worked out of the box. It was stellarly fast. It had all the latest packages. Mind you, CQR log did not have a dependency of MySQL or MariaDB, which blows my mind because it should be in there. I know it's in there when you install it out of the regular distribution. So it must be something just mixed up with the, uh, the testing branch of the package. So all I had to do was install MySQL. Not that big a deal. But... It used LXDE. Now, this could have been just my particular download. I wanted the uh, multimedia edition so I could, you know, have all the all the tools like Ardor and stuff like that for doing audio stuff. I had the Liquorix kernel, which is the, uh, you know, the low latency kernel. This one scored a 4.3, primarily due to the LXDE. Mind you, I did try putting some other uh, GUIs on there, and I kind of broke the system. <laughs> <laughs> So I wasn't going to give it back points <laughs> because I put something sexy on top. Uh, at that point, I was like, yeah, it's, it's time for this to go. So, yeah, 4.3, not bad. I mean, it, it, is, it is a pretty good package. If you could stand the LXDE or find one with, like, uh, something else as the GUI that's already kind of baked in there, you're not guaranteed it's not going to break. It is running on the testing branch of uh, Debian. So there you go. Sparky Linux 4.3. It will work great in your ham shack now, if you want to try it out. You say Sparky Linux is a rolling dis- distribution of Debian, but Debian's already a rolling release. Yeah, I know. It's but it's like a it's a, a, a you know what do you call it? distribution packaging running on top of the testing branch. They have their own repos as well. Right. So it's just like Mint. Mint is has yeah, their own packages yeah. on top of Ubuntu, which has its own packages on top of Debian and yada yada yada. So all right. Yeah, except for I never had any luck with Mint, so I might have to go back and try that again because yeah, last time I ran Mint it, it did not end very well. So <laughs> <laughs> I bet it'll work better than Solus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably work better than this, but but Solus is sexy. <laughs> anyway. So the next one I tried was uh, Susie Tumbleweed, uh, and I hadn't used Susie in God knows how long. Uh, there was a quite a few packages built for the rolling release of Susie. I started with the GNOME Live CD, so this is running, uh, I guess, was GNOME three, right, or something like that. Yes. Um, there is a ham radio repository for this. I did have to Google for it, uh, and I had to drop in the URL. Surprisingly, it's not listed as in one of the communities. 
And actually, if you go into YAS2, which I guess is the software manager or whatever for this, you know, I go into add repository and they have like community repositories. You click the button, it launches and you have two two empty, uh, I would assume would be list boxes that have absolutely nothing in there. So I guess there are no community ones that are approved for the uh, rolling release, but you can add it in manually. And all you have to do is just, you know, search for, you know, Susie, Ham Radio, uh, live packages. That installed really good. I hadn't run GNOME in a long time. GNOME 3 looked pretty, and it had the same problem with CQR logs, surprisingly. The MySQLD was not uh, was not satisfied by YAS2, so I actually had to go install it separately, which I think on that one I installed MariaDB. And so that one scored a 4.5. It wasn't, uh, wasn't too hard to get going. It had pretty sexy look and feel. GNOME 3 is pretty shiny. It was good experimenting with both of those. But uh, I did I did put Solus back on my box, so I'm for some reason stuck on this. <laughs> on your two point five daily driver. Yeah, on my daily driver. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because you know, again, most of the stuff I do is is basically use the internet, get on IRC, <laughs> play some videos and yeah, do a ton of searching for uh interesting articles to fill the void of the time of my life. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I actually gave Susie Tumbleweed a a spin today. I did it in a virtual machine, not on bare metal, but I actually downloaded a system, and I'm not sure which ISO I got, but it allowed me to choose the desktop environment that I wanted to run. I chose to use uh, GNOME, because that's what I'm familiar with. It does install the GNOME 3 interface. It did also allow for KDE... And there were a couple of other options as well that I could choose from. Uh, but I went with GNOME. The installer was very nice. It was a uh, nice looking. It was a little on the flashy side, so you definitely got a little bit of eye candy there. And the installation procedure was a little bit longer. It seemed to take longer than some of the other distributions I've tried of late uh, to actually accomplish the installation. But I went and you know, like poured myself a drink and came back, and suddenly I had a working system. And one nice thing about the Suzy distribution in this particular case is it had the VirtualBox extensions, oh, guest editions. right? The guest editions pre-installed, yep. so all of that stuff worked out of the box. The GNOME interface is very nice; it's cool and slick looking, just like GNOME is. I really, really hate YAS two. <laughs> I I got into it using the curses based interface, so it's really ugly and it's hard to navigate and all of that. There are some options you can hand to it to fire up the GTK and or the Qt version if you're running KDE or GNOME. But when I tried to do that in my GNOME system, it did not run. It just gave me the curses-based system again. Uh, so I went around looking for the ham radio package. I never really found it, and I didn't bother doing the Google part where I actually could uh, add it and uh, get the ham radio software. So I can't give this one a score because I didn't get as far as actually getting to ham radio software. But for a basic Linux distribution, it's the first time in some time that I've actually been interested in SUSE or any of the RPM-based distributions. So it's kind of nice, yeah. and I would like to look at it a little bit further. So, so I didn't play with it a whole lot, but uh, I did like what I saw. Uh, and especially in the virtual environment, it worked really well. Uh, so I would like to, you know, set it up with some ham radio packages and test it out and actually kick the tires a little bit. But it definitely looks like a a good release. And if you're looking for something to keep things more updated and more toward the bleeding edge, 
uh, in an RPM-based distro, SUSE might be the way to go. It's kind of a neat little project they've got going here. Yeah, and in the show notes, we link both the uh, the ISO image and the repository for the uh, ham radio stuff. So that's there. All right. Well, excellent. Hopefully, we'll keep this rating system going. We need to create some more features that are LHS specific, so we can, uh, <laughs> we can sound like professional or something. I don't know. I kind of made it up on the fly. I was like, oh, "There's got to be some way we can kind of keep track of these." I can't. You know, I feel like we kind of blow through some of them and never really index them in uh, in my mind to like how this one compared to that one. So right. I was like, "I would take the opportunity to look at this while I'm blowing through these uh, ISOs." I'd say overall from uh, – I, I should probably create a bunch of categories and then, like, give them a score and then average them all out and say this is my overall thing, uh, you know, like ease of use, ease of that installation, stuff like though. that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay. Well, from a purely subjective standpoint, from my playing around with Suzy Tumbleweed for, like, all of 10 minutes, I would give it probably about a 4.2 just as a Linux oh, distribution. And I, it might go up a couple of points depending on how ham-worthy it is, I guess. Uh, you know, So maybe we'll revisit that. Awesome. All right. Well, that's all we had for our initial topics for the evening. So we're going to move on to some music. For the music this time, I went a little bit lighter than last time. A little more folky and... <laughs> acoustic-y and stuff like that so um but this is a good track it's kind of a long one it runs almost six minutes so you definitely have some time to go out and get a cup of coffee or something stronger or whatever while you're chilling out to this and uh this is a song called the waiting it's by a group called yellow lady slipper from the album yellow lady slipper courtesy of Jimendo. this actually came out a few years ago in november of 2010 these folks are from Pennsylvania in the United States. A uh, link to the song will, of course, be in the show notes. Like I said, it runs about 5 minutes and 43 seconds. And uh, I enjoyed listening to it before, so I hope to enjoy listening to it again. Here's The Waiting by Yellow Lady Slipper.
All right, that was The Waiting by Yellow Lady Slipper. And Bill is like, gee, somebody must have reacted to last week's episode. <laughs> you play something <laughs> so just mellow. Too hard and edgy, man. What's up? <laughs> no, that, was, that wasn't in response to anything. I ran a little bit short of time, but I actually like all kinds of music, so... I, yeah, me too. <laughs> I was just picking on it. <laughs> I know. I thought that was pretty good. It, it, it definitely a little slow. Uh, so I guess we're just going to have to pick up the pace for the second half of the show <laughs> or something. So yeah, check that one out. Link, of course, will be in the show notes, and I'll find something more up-tempo for next time. All right, so we're on to announcements and feedback. And our first bit here is an announcement. I found a... A ham radio podcast that I'm not sure I'd heard mentioned anywhere else before. It probably has been, and I just didn't know it. This is uh, the Australian one, right? Yes, it's. Uh, I found it on iTunes. I'm sure it's available at like Pod Beans and probably other places. You can Google for it. It's called Foundations of Amateur Radio Podcast. It's done by uh, an Australian amateur VK6 Flab. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> VK6 Flab. Uh, is his call sign? It's Not interesting. Letters? No, I I asked that like way back, like an episode like fifty or something <laughs> about the fact that um, I thought call signs were all like you know one by three, two by three, whatever. Uh, but apparently, yeah. the foundation license in in Australia is identified by that F after the number, so uh, they actually have a two by four call when they first get licensed there. And it's always something, something, number, F, something, something, something. So there you go. And he stole my call sign. What, VK6 Flab? Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm the queen of Flab, so. <laughs> Whatever. So anyway, these are um, these are just little nuggets that he picks, uh, picks up on. And they're little, like, one-topic episodes that usually run between one and three minutes. So just super easy listening. Short and sweet. Yeah, short and sweet, to the point, picks a topic, gives you some info, you go about your day. A uh, link to that will be in the show notes. Yeah, completely different from our show. <laughs> so, yeah, doesn't, we don't, he doesn't ramble on for hours about nonsense. <laughs> exactly. Right. And throw in a random recipe here and there. You right, know? exactly. Well, yeah, because you get hungry listening to a show for this long. <laughs> <laughs> we've, we've like make a sandwich show, you know? Right. <laughs> I think we've prepared and eaten meals during the show at one point. So... Anyway, a link to the Foundations of Amateur Radio podcast will be in the show notes, so you can check that out if you want. And you can listen to, like, his entire series of podcasts in probably a couple hours. All right, moving on, we have some feedback. We have quite a bit of feedback tonight, actually. The first one is some voicemail, and, you know, we love voicemail. So this one is from Doug, November 6th, Leave a Mic X-Ray, out in California. And uh, let's hear what Doug has to say. Hello, Russ, Cheryl, and Bill. This is Dud, November 6th, Lima, Mike X-Ray. Just heard you disparaging on Pokemon Go. Well, guess what? I'm a Pokemon Go player myself, as is the rest of my family. It's actually a way all four of us can connect, and it's been a big help in getting my wife and my son to connect again, which is outstanding. Uh, as someone who plays... A lot of geolocation games, uh, I find it a nice addition, although there are still those crazy people out there. Uh, my 
absolute passion for geolocaching, geolocation will still be geocaching. But Pokemon Go is a nice uh, diversion from that. And out here in California, the craze is still going on a bit. But, of course, we've got warm weather still. Come Christmas, we'll see what happens. Bye. All right, that's from Doug, N6LMX. And I was commenting to Cheryl about this when the voicemail came in, and I was I was saying that I don't think we were disparaging Pokemon Go. I think we were just talking about it. And we were saying that it was a way to get people outside and sort of interacting with the public because it was actually in response to that story from RPI about, you know, getting out and doing stuff and trying things and not being um, at home plugged into your Xbox all the time. It seemed to be a exactly. very short-lived thing here. Right. The, the craze uh, did seem to wind see, up pretty quick. Yeah, you, you, you see still it. see people out, but not as many right. as you did in the beginning. So. No, but I, I think... was just mentioning it in reference to I was downtown <laughs> and I saw people playing it. It was fine. It was cute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think I think it's perfectly good for what it is, you know, except for those loonies that decide they have to, like, jump over the White House fence and that kind of crap. <laughs> to... Yeah, that's probably not but... good, but yeah. Yeah, but overall, I don't think we were disparaging a Pokemon Go at all. I think it does, in some limited sense, get people to socialize. But I mean, honestly, it would just be better if people want to talk to each other. I'm not sure. That hey, I have. Of... I still have Ingress installed on my phone, and I do use it every once in a while for <laughs> giggles. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure because I like hacking portals and dropping sensors or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure that Pokemon Go really has people interacting with each other. They're interacting near each other. They're, yeah, but they're not. They're not like, "Hey, Bob, come here." It's more like, "Hey, Bob, stay away from my pokey." They're all staring at their phones. So, well, they do that anyway. They sit at dinner and stare at. Their well, phone, yeah, so. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we we do that too. Let's move on from Pokemon. All right, enough about that. Okay, I'm just going to go back to World of Warcraft. That's it. All okay. right, there you go. So we actually have like real feedback from listeners <laughs> about oh, like okay. oh, yeah. about Linux and ham type stuff. Oh, sweet! Yeah, we got an email from John Kilo Nine Foxier Golf, and he says, "Greetings, guys! So excited about what you offer to the community. I used to have all your podcasts up until the time I had a catastrophic computer blowout." <laughs> That's too bad. We've had that happen before yeah. here, too. <laughs> uh, I have been a Linux user since around 1994 when I lived in Tennessee and purchased a box Linux set from Walnut Creek CD-ROM, which had like four or five distros and a Linux book. I was also the president of a Linux users group for several years before we moved to Texas. My Hamshack slash computer center consists of several radios and a go kit with an ICOM 7000 ready for deployment when I get back into the U.S. Army Mars program and also for Ares, Skywarn, and Red Cross volunteering. I am a licensed extra since 2013, but other than Mars work and Skywarn, I really did not make many contacts and lost a bit of interest for a little while. I was thinking about starting another Linux users group in Fredericksburg, Texas. Those years were so fun, even with all the CD-ROM slash distros, they sent stickers, stuffed mascots, t-shirts, and hats that I then gave out. I don't know how many people I inspired to try Linux, but I surely planted the seed. Sorry for the long-winded post. I get really passionate about Linux and love to talk about it. That's that's the supremely condensed version. But I got a lot of information from John. He wants to be an ambassador for some cool. for something that's you know happens down in Texas. So that's very good. We'll talk to you about that when something comes up. I know there's the Texas Linux Fest, which I think is still a thing uh, down in Austin. 
So if that happens, maybe we can have you do that or whatever. But anyway, thanks for listening. Thanks for uh, being a subscriber. He'll show up later on in the social media roundup. And uh, thanks for sending us some feedback. And uh, we love your enthusiasm, and we appreciate the fact that you love our enthusiasm because we like to do this too. Uh, we ran several Linux users groups in our area before the whole idea of Linux users groups kind of went by the wayside around here. So we've done our bit for advocacy for Linux, and now we just do it this way through podcasting. So that was uh, again from John Kilo Nine Fox Sierra Golf from Texas, and uh, we'll be in touch, John. So thanks for listening. So moving on from that, we have another email from Andy Golf Seven United Romeo. No, no, no. Golf Seven United Hotel. Golf Seven United Hotel November. I can't even read my own thing here. <laughs> G Seven U H N. And Andy says, hi, Russ, me again. I'm way behind on my podcast listening, only up to LHS number 167. And something mentioned in that show about Pulse Audio made me think about sending in a general Linux slash Hamlive question. I'm taking part of my virtual shack set up to the next level and putting together a remote radio server and client based on a single Raspberry Pi 3 at each end. There's nothing really original here. It's just tying together various Linux applications and commands with a Python GUI. Part of this project is putting together a GUI Windows slash control panel at the client RPI3 that makes it more friendly and could be adapted to any radio that might be at the server end. The question is, can I extract from an installed copy of Hamlibe the list of supported radios and a few parameters associated with each of those radios, in particular the name, model, baud rate, and stop bits. I'd like to complete a configure section of my GUI so that these values can be used to populate dropdowns in the Python GUI, allowing the user to select their rig of choice and the commands that are used to start up various functions that will have the appropriate values drawn from Hamlibe. It's hard-coded at the moment for my Elecraft K2. Hamlib obviously has the information I need within it, but I'm a total beginner when it comes to programming, so I really don't know where to start. Any pointers you can throw my way? How does a total noob start working with Hamlib, and can it be as simple as just extracting a table of values out of it? Also, I stumbled across my call sign in the show notes for episode number 170. Wow, thanks so much for the plug of my site. Great to hear you like it. That's made my day. Keep up the great work. I love the show, Andy, G7UHN. So let's just say thanks, Andy, for sending uh, in that feedback. And again, that one was yeah, cut down great. by about 80%. To try and answer the question, if you're using an installed version of Hamlib, unfortunately, no, there is no easy way to extract the list of radios out of that because everything is compiled bytecode when you do the binary package install. Now, you can get the source of Hamlib. There is an include file in the source of Hamlib that does list all of the radios that are supported by the current version of Hamlib. Unfortunately, it's not in a nice formatted table. However, I would say this. Things like the data rate and the stop bits for radios that are connected via Hamlib are often not set in stone. They may have defaults, but those can often be changed. Like, for example, on my Kenwood, I believe the default value is 57.6 and one stop bit. But you can change that arbitrarily. You can do it via, via Hamlib or via the rig's front panel interface. 
having that information at hand, at least as far as the the baud rate and stop bits, is not going to be something you can extract necessarily from Hamlib code. The list of rigs you can, however, and I believe there is actually a function in Hamlib that will enumerate all of the ham radios that are contained within it because lots of the software packages that make use of Hamlib can give you a drop-down menu of available radios. And I believe that's a, a call to a C function that is is implemented in the code that, that references the Hamlib. So what you would need to do is either have your Python code call the C code library and actually execute it to give you back the list of ham radios, or you would have to go in and look at the C code and rewrite it in Python to do the same thing. Uh, like I said, there is an include file that does give you a list, but it's a list of defines. It's basically just a bunch of uh, lists of variable declarations. I agree with you on the, the defaults issue. There, there is no such thing as defaults. <laughs> each, each, what I found out with rig control is that each piece of software has its recommended settings. And it's primarily uh, dealing with polling rates and stuff like that and how often it wants to refresh the screen. So it may recommend that you, you may have a default of 9,600 baud or 57.6 in your case. But some of them might say, well, no, you need to throttle that back because we don't want it to respond that fast. Right. You know, so there's there's so many little nuances with that. I don't think there's a lot of value to trying to, you know, set up defaults. You know, the user, if they're trying to plug it into the radio, yeah, you know, get the manufacturer defaults, make that be the default, and then run with that. Otherwise, you know, allow the user to say, you know, hey, it didn't connect, you know. Let me, uh, you know, here are the options that you can do to change it. You know, if you've had modified your radio at all, there's there's really no way to do it unless you uh, cycle through uh, various baud rates and stuff like that until you finally get, you know, a string back from the rig. Right. And, you and that's what most people would do is that you, know, you just you just basically start an auto auto pulse routine and start flipping through until you get an answer back you expect and then lock that in as the settings. And that that shouldn't take you, you know a very simple loop, <laughs> you know, looping function. And then you, you could basically set up for almost any radio. Yeah. If you want to do something where it tries to automatic automatically set the baud rate without any user intervention. And as far as listing radios, the rig control command does hook into Hamlib and it does print out a text list of available radios. If you're just looking for the list, but there's obviously a call to a function inside the C code that allows you that allows it the code to enumerate the list of predefined rigs. So all you have to do is hook into that somehow with your Python code, and that'll give you that back. But as far as uh, getting baud rates and default information for the connected rig, you're going to have to do a little more work. So. Yeah, you can probably even get on GitHub and look at Pylog or something like that. I think that already has all that stuff built in too. So if you just want to kind of see how that was implemented, GitHub is your friend. Yeah, there's usually a lot of people who have written interfaces for various languages into other people's libraries. So the thing you're you're looking for that to actually hook into your code may already be out there, and it may be yeah. something you can just integrate directly. So. Yeah, and FL Digi has the same implementation. So so you can look at the source on that, and you can see how they implemented it, and then implement it yourself in a very similar fashion. So hopefully that was a long way around to a simple answer. I don't know. <laughs> I guess we'll find out when he emails back and says, what the hell were you talking about? Anyway, I hope that was some help and uh, good luck with your project. It sounds like it's an interesting thing and we'd like to hear more about it as uh, it progresses. 
now it's all about the food. So yeah, food. Yeah, we're, food. we're here to we're here to talk about food. Well, you need to talk about what you had for dinner. No, I'm not talking about it. You're going to tell us what I had for dinner. Oh, 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 I see. If you missed it last week, um, in a new turn of events, we're going to uh, test out each recipe or hopefully test out each recipe for dinner prior to the show. Uh, so tonight we trialed tonight's recipe, which is a ravioli and meatball bake. Prior to the show, I believe Russ gave it a thumbs up. Yes, we haven't come up with a five-point rating scale yet for the recipes. <laughs> yeah, so it was definitely <laughs> definitely a positive on that. But I could practically live on Italian food, and this is, to me, uh, an Italian dish. At least it has an Italian flavor. So there really is little you could do to make it where I wouldn't like it. But go ahead and talk about it. Well, you're not a big fan of cheese ravioli, so. But you put meatballs in it. So, hey, there you go. Yeah, I put meatballs in it. So, anyway, for the ravioli and meatball bake, you need a 26-ounce jar of spaghetti sauce or homemade approximate amount, uh, 24-ish meatballs. I think I probably used about 36 and these are very small meatballs yeah, if you these, have larger meatballs you need less meatballs. Of them, yeah so. yeah uh and you can are, they, are these ikea meatballs no no they're, they're about the size of ikea meatballs though <laughs> they, they were actually walmart meatballs although we were in kansas city over the weekend and i could have gone to ikea but i didn't we had uh one 24 ish ish ounce package of frozen cheese ravioli and some shredded mozzarella cheese the recipe calls for cup I tend to just go as that as being a suggestion, and I probably use closer to two cups, but that's just how I roll. Um, so you put all of this in a a uh, nine by thirteen pan, preferably glass, that has been sprayed with some cooking spray. You put a layer of tomato sauce in the bottom. Put some meatballs on top of that. Put some ravioli on top of that. Put a layer of tomato sauce on top of that. And then do meatballs and ravioli and tomato sauce on top of that. Cover it in cheese and bake it for eh, 45-ish minutes until your cheese is melted and kind of browned on the top. I would suggest covering it with foil for the first 30-ish minutes or your cheese will be burnt. You can garnish it with some basil if you like. Serve it up and it's good to go. Yep. And as I said, I can I can eat anything that vaguely resemble, uh, resembles Italian all day long. So cheese ravioli, meatballs, sauce, and cheese is is right up my alley, and I I thought it was fantastic. I'm probably going to go warm up some more after the show. <laughs> wow. Yummy. Okay. <laughs> so you're eating tomorrow's lunch. Just remember that. Uh, I'm just going to have a little bit more. Oh, okay. Yeah, very good, though. Very good. Try this one out. Super simple. We bought all frozen ingredients. All of the stuff came prepackaged from Walmart, including the ravioli. Yeah, we bought frozen ravioli at Walmart, frozen meatballs at Walmart, frozen a jar of spaghetti sauce at Walmart. Right, and the even the Parmesan cheese is the dehydrated Parmesan cheese that you mozzarella. get at Walmart. Or Parmes- put, is Parmesan mozzarella? No, I I you I put Parmesan in the spaghetti sauce, but it's mozzarella cheese. Oh, okay, well Parmesan mozzarella, all of that stuff you can you can buy it all at Walmart, super cheap. You can even buy the nine by thirteen inch baking dish if you don't have that. So yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> glass is always better than metal though because tomato sauce is acidic metal is not good with that etc 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 so all right so there you go ravioli meatball bake try it at a house near you like your own <laughs> or maybe the neighbor's house <laughs> or maybe the neighbor's oven. house too right yeah. 
Yeah. All right. Uh, the recipe, of course, will be in the show notes. So we're moving on to our social media roundup. Woo. All right, let's do it. All right, donations and subscriptions. We have Jonas Rulio, Jeremy Hall, Michael Conley, Scott Pettigrew, Bob Yerke, Paul Griffith, Ronald Ike, Johnny Kinsey, Brian Smith, Robert Halliday, Ben Schram, Michael Aiello, John Clark, Rob Branch Dash, Edward Dunley, Donald Gever, Alan Wilson, Stephen Sainer, Dylan Engel, Jason Marinero, James Blocker, Doug Redder, Mike Lasky, Darren King, Petra Krasarkis, Donna Farron, Bill Stearns, Bill Piotr, Robert Pitts, Jeff Kinnell, and John Fotsky. On Facebook, we have Dalen Blosser and Adam Olays. Uh, nobody joined us on Google Plus this week. Twitter was at Cubicle Nate. YouTube, nobody. Mailing list with John Fotsky and Bob Smallwood Jr. And there were no merchandise sales. That's right. That's where we are. And and Rob in the chat room, Robert Pitts, <laughs> uh, a name we just mentioned, said, a good $2 a month spent to hear my name called. <laughs> uh, I guess so. So, uh, Joni loves Fotsky. Whatever. <laughs> oh, I hope his wife's name is Joni. I really do. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, anyway, I think we have an episode title. All right. So that's it. That's the end of the show. Thanks, everybody. I'm going to push the little outro button and we'll hear some music. And hey, look, there it is. So this has been episode number 176 of Linux in the Ham Shack. You can become an LHS ambassador. Visit the website for upcoming events and information on how you can represent Linux in the Ham Shack at a nearby LinuxCon or Ham Fest. We love feedback. You can email us at info at lhspodcast.info, comment on an episode on the website, post on Google+, Facebook, or Twitter, or leave a voicemail at 1909-LHS-SHOW. That's 1909-547-7469. You can visit our IRC channel, Octothorpe LHS Podcast on Freenode, and subscribe to our mailing list. Show merchandise from coffee mugs to t-shirts can be purchased at www.cafepress.com stroke LHS Podcast. You can also help the show by clicking on the sponsored ads in the right-hand column of the homepage. Listen live every other Monday at 8 o'clock Central Time. That's Tuesday at 0100 Zulu in the summertime, 0200 Zulu in the winter. Our recording schedule and countdown timer to the new episode are on the website, and our website is lhspodcast.info. You can get all the information you ever wanted to know about the show there. So thank you to all of our listeners, live and quasi-live, past, present, and future, and all of our subscribers for helping to fund and keep the show going. We appreciate all of you, and we hope to see you again, or at least we hope you hear us again in a couple of weeks. I'm Russ, K5TUX, and out there from the Swank Hotel in Bozeman, Big Sky, Montana, is Bill. 73, everyone. And sitting across from me is Cheryl. Thank you for listening, everyone. And we will see you in two weeks to do it all over again. Take care, everybody.
have done. Lost my place.